Church, as a New Year's theme, we've been in the book of Hebrews and talking about how to run the race with endurance. And the passage is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So let us run with endurance. The word with endurance, endurance means perseverance, purposefulness, a sense of dignity. And I mean, Kevin, how do you run the Christian race with a persevering, wholehearted attitude? And, and I've talked about three points. Point number one was we have to realize the passage says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There have been men and women who've gone before us, who lived for the Lord, and men and women who will come behind us. We have received a legacy of faith. We are going to be passing on a heritage of faith as we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit empowers us that has empowered godly men and women in the past. Second and thirdly, last week I talked about points two and three, we have to get rid of that which weighs us down. And that which weighs us down is any attitude, any pursuit that becomes immoderate, that starts to eclipse the reality of Christ. It can be a good pursuit that becomes an idol in our heart. And anything can be that. And the sin which so easily entangles us. And I mentioned last week that there are sin patterns in our life that are part of our age stage, that certain people deal with sins at this point and others at this point. We also have sin patterns that are just part of who we are and our personality and part of our family heritage. All of us come from families. And our families, in many cases, have been a great blessing, but also there's a downside to a family in a fallen world. So, so we all have family heritages that, that are somewhat great and somewhat not so great, and it's our responsibility to break them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are just kind of drifting. In fact, Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, don't drift. Verse 3, don't, don't neglect your salvation. He says that you should be teachers by this time, but once again, you need basic elementary pablum. And so he says you, you need to be growing in your faith. And so this, this book is all about going for it and being resilient, and not drifting, but being steadfast. So this morning, as we close this out, I want to talk about uh, three application points from this passage, just all application if I'm to run the race with endurance, those three points, and here's application point number one. There's a course that is set before us, is clearly marked, and I must run with an effort that flows from an understanding of grace. Now, that's a discombobulated statement, but I think that's what the book is teaching. There's a course that is set before us. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, from his deathbed, we think, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. The race. I've completed the course. So there's a course that's laid out for us. It is set before us. And each person here has a different course, a different pattern, but we're all called to the same race. Now here's a picture of a washed out bridge. So how do you run the race? How do you run the course? Okay. Psalm 19 says, 
regarding the Word of God. By the statements of Scripture, is your servant warned? In keeping them, there's great reward. The Scripture is like uh, an engineer from the highway department who's standing on the corner knowing that the bridge has been washed out. It's late at night, and you don't know it. And so he's standing there waving with all of his might, with torches set up, saying the bridge has been washed out. That's what the Word of God does. It keeps you on the course. If we're to run the race, we've got to be people of the book. That's it. I've had the privilege of being in parts of the world where you go up in the mountains, and you're high in the mountains, and there's a sheer drop, and there are no guardrails. And it's scary. And you realize, if, you, if I take the wrong turn, if I take the wrong bend in the road, I can go plunging 2,000 feet. So I have never, ever, ever fussed about guardrails. I like guardrails. Guardrails mean safety. There's nothing wrong with guardrails. The Bible says that Scripture is that which protects us. It keeps us from error. It keeps us from going the wrong way. So it's a race that's got to be defined by the guardrails. Now, this is very important. It's a race that requires effort. In fact, endurance means you run hard. Let us run with endurance. You run with purpose. Uh, it talks about uh, purposeful living in the book of Hebrews, for example. Hebrews 3 and verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest anyone of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, so, so you, you, you push. And, you, and, and then he says in chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us strive. Strive to enter the rest. Now, I want you to understand this. This is very important. The reason I say we should always study the Bible in context is, is when you study the Bible in context, you get the whole message. If you just took verse 11 in Hebrews 4, therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You say, man, I've got to strive. It's up to me. I've got to strive. I've got to strive. I've got to strive. But when you read the verse in context, this is what it says. Chapter 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Very important to read in context. And then you drop down to verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So, so what, what the writer is saying is this, and this is what you got, that, that there's a rest for us, brothers and sisters, that we've entered into when we have ceased from our efforts. We don't strive anymore to earn God's favor. We strive because God has loved us with an everlasting love. All the difference in the world. 
so, so you, verse 11 would seem like you've got to strive, you've got to strive, but, but the preceding statement says this, once again, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his works. And then he says, remember the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who's passed through the heavens. And then in chapter 10, he says this in verse 11 and 12, every, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's in the Old Testament. They daily sacrifices that can never take away sins. They look to the coming Messiah King. Next verse. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, it's done. It's completed. So, so our striving, our striving is out of a desire to please Abba Father because we see the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We're not doing it to earn his favor. We're not on the performance track. We are on the grace track. John Owen, who died in 1681 and wrote a six-volume work on the book of Hebrews, said they, faith and obedience, are not only a present means of entering into the future eternal rest with God, i.e. heaven, but they give us a present participation in the rest of Christ. A present participation. See, my question is, have you entered into that rest? Do you understand that rest? Are you glorying in that rest and the fullness of Christ? And if I'm to run the race well, I've got to get that right. Of course, it's clearly marked. It requires an effort, but it flows from grace. Here's a homey illustration. I love sports. I played sports in high school. I love basketball. Um, I'm from North Carolina. If you don't love basketball, if you're not from North Carolina, you don't love basketball, something's wrong with you. So I love basketball. And I had two coaches in high school. Okay, one coach um, pulled me aside into his office, closed the door, and he said, I want you to know something. It's very flattering. He said, I really believe in you as a basketball player, and if you hustle, and if you move your feet on defense, which you don't do a lot of times, okay? If you move your feet on defense and you hustle and you do what I tell you to do, I will never take you out of the game unless you request to be taken out of the game. Let me tell you something. A 16-year-old guy is never going to ask to be taken out of the game unless he's bleeding from every limb, okay? He says, you're going to play. Converse, I had another coach. that coached me for two years. Nice guy, not very personable. And this is what he'd do. If you made a mistake, he yanked you. And he put you at the end of the bench. And he didn't even tell you what you did wrong. Sometimes I knew what I did wrong. Sometimes I had no idea. So I'm playing. All of a sudden, the buzzer sounds. Buzzer, I'm taking your place. Boom. I'm at the end of the bench. I'm going, what did I do? Let me tell you the difference. Coach A, if you've ever played sports, you can play with abandon. The pressure is off. You die for balls. You go like crazy. You're not afraid of making a mistake because this coach believes in you. Coach B, you play tentatively. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to be benched. I don't want to be, be taken out of the game. I don't want to not be a starter next week. That's a very home illustration. A lot of us live with Coach B, and the living God is Coach A. So we operate at the basis of grace. Even this, this difficult passage in Hebrews 12, it talks about the discipline of God. It's a very interesting statement. In Hebrews 12, it says this, verse 9. It says, we, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. They were good daddies. 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, our fathers, as seemed best to them. But he, Abba Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. What a statement. See, he, he's appealing to the greatness and the grandeur and the magnificence of Christ, of Abba Father. So, so we, we, we strive. Yes, we strive. But it's out of seeing the grace of the cross and the high priestly work of Jesus. Uh, and we run the dignity and purpose. Uh, there's, there's, there's nothing more disheartening than to see someone come to the end of their days and end their life with a lack of joy and bitterness. And that should never be the, the pathway of the child of God. To get to the end of your days and realize that you put a big ladder on the wrong house. The course, the course is here. You, you run the course. I read about a marathon in Manchester, New Hampshire just a few months ago. 1,800 participants. Uh, a marathon is 26.2 miles. It's a long way. And, and so the, the runners run the race and they get to the 24th mile in this race and there's you have to take a, a right as you're running to do the last 2.2 miles. And there were two guys who were elite runners and they were way out in front of everybody. And even the, the race organizers were in the, in, the, in the pace cars were a little bit behind them because they're keeping up with the rest of the people. And so there was a sign pointing marathon this way, marathon this way, and, and, or as you're running, marathon this way. Okay, you get it? And there's a windstorm and it blew the sign over. Okay? And so instead of taking a right, the runners, the two elite runners, and they were going to get a cash prize of several thousand dollars, just kept running. Just kept running for another mile. And the, the guy who was in the lead, who's an elite runner, said, and then the street dead ended. And he said, my heart sank, and I realized I was off course. And he was so emotionally done, I would have been, well, I would have been, Emotionally done, fourth mile, but that's beside the point. He was so, he was so emotionally done that he didn't even finish the race. Missed out on a five, six thousand dollar purse. See, do the race. Do the race. The second point here is that, is that, is that all athletes train. And there's a training regimen for people in the race of faith. If you go to a gym and you're surrounded by these young guys who are just in great shape and you listen to a talk and they say, yeah, today is arm day. And they're doing massive curls and whatever you do. And, and uh, another guy says, well, today's back day for me. And they're doing back and tricep, whatever they do. And today's, today, the guy says, today's leg and thigh day. And so they're doing all these leg exercises. And then today's chest day. And... They look at me and I say, today is get out of bed day. <laughs> and I nailed it this morning, man. I got out of bed. You know, it's kind of like the 90-year-old like uh, women in a retirement home talking to each other. And they're, they've been friends for 70-plus years. And one of them looks at her friend and says, I'm sorry. I hate to ask you this. I know we've known each other forever. But what is your name? <laughs> and her friend puts her coffee cup down and looks at her and says, when do you need to know that? <laughs> so, but you know, we, we all get old, but listen, no matter how old you are, you never quit training in the race of faith. You never. You never quit training. 
And there's a training regimen. And it's interesting. These are people, they're, they're drifting. They're drifting. And, and so you say, well, what's, what's the training regimen for these people, for all people? I'm going to give you a couple of them. Hebrews 10, 24 says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Say, so, well, how, how do we stir each other up? How do we push each other along? Here's the answer. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the judgment. So, so you say, well, how, how do we stir up one another? You meet together with each other on the Lord's day. It's very simple. You're, you're with the saints. You're, there's, 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 a, there's a power released when people are in worship. Chapter 4, he says this was another training regimen. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We're people of the book. You, just, this, is, this, is, this is what we do. Something happened to me 14 years ago, three months apart. I was going, wow. So, so I, I, when I meet people that are further along than I am and they're vibrant in the faith, I say, you know, wh what are you doing to keep you strong in the Lord? Because I want to finish strong. So 14, 15 years ago, we had a man here named John Hanna, who's professor of church history at Dallas Seminary, taught there for literally 50 years. Amazing guy. Uh, PhD, published respected. He led a conference here. I took him out to lunch. I said, Dr. Hanna, what, as, as I've seen your, your grace and your kindness and your embrace of life, man, it's so encouraging. What have you done to get you there? And he said, tell you what, what's happened in the last two years that's made a difference in my life and my wife's life and our marriage. So we've always studied the Bible. We, we've, we've had a, a concentrated desire the last, oh, two years. We've been in a Bible study program where we've memorized key texts and meditated on them and applied them to our lives. And it's made all the difference. And i got to be honest with you. I went, I, knew, I heard that in Bible school. Study the Bible. Apply it. So I was expecting to say, well, you, you fly to Kazakhstan, you get on a donkey, you go high in the mountains, then you climb up the highest mountain and rubber rock or steal an egg out of a nest and take it to the Smithsonian. Something. No, it's the word and prayer and meditation. I went, wow. Three months later, we had a missions conference that we're going to have again in February. Hope you're here. You ought to be here. Make a plan to be here. Our speaker was a guy named Don Camendiner, and Don's a delightful man, older, had been a missionary in Argentina for almost four decades, came back here, was on the staff international mission board, took him out to lunch. Same question. He's vibrant, loving. What did you do? What have you done to be vibrant in the faith? Here's his answer. He stopped me. He said, you know, I'm not asked that very often. He said, but I never miss Sunday school in church. I'm going, that's it? And they hear this. It's called the means of grace. You give yourself to those things that the Bible clearly teaches, and God blesses you. We ordained a wonderful young man the last hour, our junior high minister, Leland Brown. And I, 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 
And I want to, I want to say to, to, to him as he teaches and everybody, do not listen to your heart. We live in this age when people say, well, what is your heart telling you? And you know, my heart can be deceitful. My heart can be formed by the culture that's not always good. I need to listen to the word. I need to listen to the word. There's a little book called uh, uh, Good News Ranks as Christians, and the guy in Kerry wrote it. It's a wonderful book. He says, the best place to hear from God is in the gathered congregation of the body of Christ, where he is present to teach and comfort and warn and guide all who believe. His speaking is not an inner experience, but a shared event. Just like the teaching and admonishing that happened in the New Testament church as they read the apostolic literature and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I say, I need to listen to the Word. The third point, very quickly, is that we need, we all need teammates. Um, Hebrews chapter 3 says this, verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Stop. What do you do? Answer. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you drift, you get hardened, you don't grow, you do, and it just happens. So if I'm going to play the game well or run the race well, I need teammates who push me and urge me and, 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 and correct me and surround me and, and love me. I, I need teammates of that, of that variety. I'm, I need teammates. Basically in life, there are fuelers and there are drainers. Now let me explain. A drainer is someone who's in a place in their life where they just find it hard to give away to people, to give to people. Emotionally, they're just hurting. I understand that. But then there are fuelers who give and serve and care, and I want to be a fueler. And if I'm in the draining quadrant, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to so change me to make me a fueler. Who fuels your life? Who are your teammates that push you on? You need them. And that's why we have this community group system that Craig Harris has overseen, and it's so important. And it's not a luxury. It's a, it's a, it's a necessity because you're fighting for your life. You're fighting for your welfare. You need fuelers. Somebody gave me this illustration 30 years ago, and I think about at least once a month. They told me this. They said, There's, some, some people are like a drink machine outside of a major shopping center. And it says on there, put in four quarters and get a soda. And you put in four quarters, nothing happens. You put in four more quarters, nothing happens. Four more quarters, nothing happens. She says, some people just will never deliver. Some of us have parents who haven't delivered. Some of us are in relationships where it's just hard. And she said, other people are like a drink machine. You put in one quarter and two Cokes come out. And you say, hey, this is my day, you know? They're fuelers. Who are the people in your life that fuel you? Who are the people in your life that build you up and strengthen you and push you on? Who are the people in your life that have the freedom to walk beside you? There's a book on 
It's on purity, but it says this. A holy God has made the universe in such a way that actions true to his character and his laws derived from his character are always rewarded. Hear that? Always rewarded. Actions that violate his character will be punished. Always rewarded with his presence and his power and his gladness. Then he says this. Satan's greatest victories and biggest defeats for us come when he gets us to ask the following question. Should I choose what God commands me or should I choose to do what's best for me? Question mark. What God commands and what God what's best for me are the same thing. And I need teammates who tell me that. I need to realize that. I need to realize that in keeping God's word, there is indeed great reward. I, I need friends around me who's, who say that the banner cry of my life is Hebrews eleven six 6, that says, without faith it is impossible to please God, forever draws near to him, must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. I need that. Who are your teammates? Who are your teammates? The Christian faith is not a lone ranger faith. Are you doing the rhythms of grace? Do you understand that you operate out of the basis of the greatness of Jesus and his love for you, not to earn his approval? That's what we've got to do, folks. That's who we have to be.